Okay, God is always at work. This has been one of the central lessons and will be of the book of Exodus. This is also one of the central truths of the whole Bible. God is always at work, even when we don't see it, even when we don't feel it. This morning, regardless of our circumstances, God is at work for our good and for the purpose of showing us who he really is. The Apostle Paul in the New Testament was unabashed and very direct in affirming this truth. In fact, he teased out this truth specifically in the context of talking about our suffering. In Romans chapter 8, he said this, I consider that our present sufferings aren't worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. And then, a few verses later, he kind of wraps that up in this conclusion. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Now, Paul doesn't say that all things are good. There are many bad, even tragic things that happen around us and to us. But through it all, in it all, God works for our good and for the purpose of showing us who he really is. I want to underscore this. That's how the universe works. Let me illustrate that. You know, physicists have long debated what laws govern our world, how it operates. And most of them have circled around the idea that there are four fundamental laws of nature that define how our world works. There's gravitation, electromagnetism, strong interactions, and weak interaction. And these laws express, quote, empirical facts that explain how the universe operates, end quote, from Wikipedia must be true. Well, today we're adding a fifth law, a fifth law to how the universe works. And and it is as immutable a part of the nature of the universe as the other four laws. This is literally how the universe operates. Here it is. Our God is always at work for our good and for the purpose of showing us who he really is. This is fundamental to reality itself. And when we act outside of the parameters of that law, or when we make assumptions contrary to that law, we put ourselves in danger in the long run. If you, if you try to operate outside of the parameters of the law of gravity, you're going to get hurt. It will not go well for you. Well, the same is true for our fifth law. God works always for our good and for the purpose of showing us who he really is. That's a truth built into the fabric of the universe, and when we live against the grain of that truth, we put ourselves in danger. But that, here's the truth. That truth is sometimes extraordinarily hard to hold on to, isn't it? To keep in mind when we get bad news from the doctor, or when someone we love dies far too early, or when bombs are being dropped on our apartment building, or when all of the circumstances of our lives just seem to pile up in the wrong direction, or when our dreams of that perfect job, or that perfect marriage, or the perfect kids, when that dream gets shattered. It's hard to hold on to the truth that God is working. So to help us hold on, God offered up Exhibit A, the life of Moses. So this morning, we're going to look at the next section of Exhibit A, which illustrates this principle as clearly as perhaps any section of Scripture 
Uh, Exodus chapter 2, verses 11 through 25. This is an awesome section of Scripture, and I'm going to read a little bit of it, and I'm going to pause, and then I'm going to have you go old school and stand with me out of reverence for God's Word. But for the first part of this, keep your seat. One day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Looking this way and that, Seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. The next day, he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. You're following the story. He asked the one in the wrong, Oh, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? And then Moses was afraid and he thought, Shoot, what I... What I did must have become known. Well, when Pharaoh heard this, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well, pausing there for dramatic effect, because Moses' story is about to change. So let's stand out of reverence for God's word here. We'll start with verse 16. Now a priest of Midian had seven daughters. That sounds like the beginning of a joke or a romantic comedy. Uh, and they came to draw water and fill the troughs to water their father's flock. Some shepherds came along, and this might have been a regular event for them, we don't know, and drove them away. But Moses got up, came to their rescue. This seems to be what Moses does, huh? And watered their flock, something no self-respecting Egyptian upper-crust guy would ever do, water the flock for these lowly women. When the girls returned to Reuel, their father, he asked them, why have you returned so early today? Because this is usually an all-day thing. Once the shepherds chase you away, and then you go back, then you gather the water, shepherds chase, you come back, get some more water, water the whole flock. They answered, an Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. Can you believe that, Dad? Well, where is he? Ruel asked his daughters. Why'd you leave him? Invite him to have something to eat. Moses agreed to stay with the man. And then, of course, we're skipping quite a bit of the story here. Who gave his daughter, Zipporah, to Moses in marriage? Let's skip ahead a little more. Zipporah gave birth to a son... And Moses named him Gershom, saying, I have become a foreigner in a foreign land. And now the summary that ends this first section of Moses' life. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery. The king dies, and it doesn't change their condition. Uh, and their cry for help, because God never helps just because we need it. God helps because we cry out. Uh, their cry went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites with, and was concerned about them. You may be seated. Already at this early point in his life, we see evidence of the kind of character that God would use to turn Moses into the great liberator of his people. He had a profound sense of justice and a, a kind of hero's mentality, didn't he? Uh, we see it with the Hebrew slave, and then again we see it later with uh, the Midianite daughters, by the, the, the women by the well. And by the way, 
The word used in verse 11 for the Egyptian beating the Hebrew slave, it's the same word used in verse 12 where Moses killed the Egyptian. In other words, the slave driver was beating this Hebrew slave savagely before Moses intervened. Now, we don't know that he intended to kill him. Probably not. But, but the beating was evidently hard to witness. So, you know, it's very likely that Moses could have been successfully defended in a court for what he did if it had ever come to trial, for instance. I mean, if he'd landed in an Egyptian court, well, Prince Moses had the power of the sword. He, he could do whatever he wanted to a lowly slave driver, right? Easy defense. And in an Israelite court, that would have been even more favorable. Moses was acting like a patriot here, saving the life of a fellow Jew. Besides, there was this ancient legal principle known as the law of retaliation. It can be found in almost every legal code in, in every culture across the, the ancient world, including in the Old Testament law. It's stated very clearly in Exodus 21. Listen to this, verses 23 and 24. Uh, if there is serious injury, you take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, etc. Uh, Your Honor, my client was clearly acting on the basis of the law of retaliation. Not guilty. Uh, without question. Plus, from a certain perspective, what Moses did here was honorable. In fact, one of the early church's most effective preachers made this exact argument about Moses in a speech that he gave before the Jewish ruling council in Jerusalem is recorded for us in Acts chapter 7. His name was Stephen, and he said this about Moses. Listen, seeing one of his uh, brothers being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking him down. This was an honorable act, but events can be more than one thing at a time, can't they? I mean, when Diane and I are in an argument, rarely happens, but when Diane and I are in an argument, it can be both her fault and uh, something that was important and even right for her to do. And so from another perspective, what Moses did here was wrong. He rashly and impetuously killed a man. And I think he knew it was wrong. I think Moses, I think what would become the sixth commandment, you shall not murder I think that was already written on Moses' heart because as soon as he contemplated killing this guy, he started acting like a guilty person, didn't he? He's looking furtively to the left and right to make sure he can conceal the deed. And then when the deed was done, he tried to bury the deed and get rid of it. And, and it, it, it was foolhardy and it was rash. And clearly from the way the two fighting Hebrews, remember that? The next day, the, the way they responded, clearly no one had asked Moses to do this. And did you notice the two Hebrew men didn't exactly respond with appreciation? They responded with sarcastic contempt. Who made you ruler and judge over us? They probably knew that Moses' actions would, would make their lives even harder. So how did it get to this point? Why, why did Moses kill this Egyptian slave driver? What was going on inside of that head of Moses' to make him do this? We don't know for sure. He doesn't offer up his thinking. But we do know one thing, just based on what happened, we know that Moses responded to this circumstance by taking matters into his own hands. There's no indication that he consulted God or anyone else. Moses was angry, furious, and he killed. I often do this. I often take matters into my own hands. I don't know about you, but uh, I can do this 
as a parent or as a husband. Uh, those of you who are very young parents, you'll, you'll find this out. Your, your children have the capacity to profoundly, profoundly disappoint you. And when they do, what I do is take matters into my own hands. I shut my heart down. Well, I don't say this consciously, but well, if you're going to do that, okay, then. I, I can do this as part of the leadership of a church. I, I guess I got to work harder. We got to do more. We got to offer more activities. We, we got to try more events. Uh, maybe that'll draw people. Maybe then they'll come back. We can do this with major decisions, can't we? Like a job. Uh, it seems completely random, but it gets us closer to home, so let's take it. This is not at all what I wanted to do, but look at the money. I got to take this job. We can, we can take relationships into our own hands as well, can't we? I know, I know this guy doesn't share my faith, but, oh, he's a really good guy, and, and I may not find anyone else. Is anyone here today at the edge of taking matters in your own hands? Let's learn a lesson from Moses. He took matters into his own hands, I suspect, because Moses forgot that God is always at work. He took matters into his own hands, and it was, the results were disastrous. <laughs> now, we don't know for sure why Pharaoh was so upset. We don't know why he wanted to kill Moses. I mean, remember, he'd been something of a father to Moses. That means something a little different in the ancient Egyptian world than it means in the suburban world of northern Virginia. But still, uh, we don't know why. Perhaps there was existing tension already between Pharaoh and Moses. Perhaps Pharaoh already had a sense that Moses' loyalty leaned in the direction of the Hebrews. But for some reason, Pharaoh wanted to kill him. So Moses had to leave. Stop for a sec. Did you get that? Moses had to leave his home, his family, his connections, everything he knew. Moses had to run. So let's think about what happened here for a moment. Moses could have enjoyed the prerequisites of power and wealth. They were his as an Egyptian princeling. He could have proudly identified himself throughout his life as an Egyptian. In fact, as a member of the ruling party of the preeminent civilization of the world at that time. Did you notice in verse 19 that Ruel's daughters identify him as an Egyptian? Clearly, he looked the part. But instead of that, Moses chose to side with the people of his heritage. They were an oppressed people, oppressed by Moses' adopted family, by the way. They were also God's people. So this was an incredibly sacrificial and noble decision. This was an epic, heroic decision. This was a God-honoring decision. He knew the etiquette. He knew the language of the court. He knew the ins and outs. He had the dress and the hairstyle, but he chose to identify with a company of slaves. And when Moses finally acted on this decision, when he played the part of the rescuer, not only is there no applause, he gets condemned by everyone on every side. And he lost everything. He lost his connection to family. He lost the court privileges. He lost his connection to his heritage. He lost his home. All for trying to do the right thing. All for obeying his conscience. For acting nobly. What do you mean all things work together for good? Well, when Moses left, he knew he needed to get himself beyond the long arm of Egyptian authority. And he did. Dean, show us the map. 
So if you notice, if you can read it, the kind of upper left portion of the map, the, the Nile Delta, it's the, the area they knew as Goshen. Moses would have been in that area. He would have traveled south down to the Red Sea and then across the Sinai, what, what's called there the wilderness of sin. There was a small trade route that went right across the desert and it would have ended up in a, a little outpost no, known at the top of the Gulf of uh, Araba known as the Ezion Geber. And then from there, he would have entered, it's small on the map, but he would have entered into the territory known as Midian. It was, it was a, a dry and desolate, sparsely populated area, populated by the Midianites. Now, when you're in the desert, water sources become exceedingly important. So Moses made his way to a well-known water source, and there he saw several young women being harassed, maybe worse, by a band of shepherds. And Moses intervened, as he was prone to do, and he rescued these women. Now, these women were daughters of a local Midianite priest. And in this passage, the priest is identified as Ruel. Later in Exodus, we're going to hear him called Jethro. Uh, and there's an eminent mid-20th century archaeologist uh, who taught at Harvard years ago. His name was William Albright. He uh, answered this mix-up and conundrum. Based on his research, uh, Dr. Albright suggested that Ruel would have been his tribal name, or what we might call his last name, and, and Jethro would have been his common name. Now, the Midianites were descendants of Abraham, we learn from Genesis, through Abraham's second wife, Keturah. So they were monotheists, meaning they believed in one God. That was an unusual thing at this point in history. Uh, so they were, they were monotheists, and we don't know much about the specifics of their belief. Probably Jethro and his family were at least friendly to the same kinds of ideas about God that Moses would have heard gr growing up through his exposure to the Jews. You know, it makes me think that Moses couldn't escape from God even if he wanted to. Some scholars have even suggested that Jethro became something of a spiritual mentor to Moses, but we have no way of knowing whether there's anything to that. We don't even know what Moses thought about God at this point, much less Jethro. You know, whenever I think of Moses, I always think of Moses as like this, this giant in the faith. I forget that Moses' spiritual life is a journey just like ours. And at this point, Moses was probably not very far along in his journey. He probably wasn't a spiritual giant. Eventually, Moses was invited to Ruel's house for a meal. We don't have any idea how he explained who he was and that he was this wealthy Egyptian and what he was doing in the middle of nowhere. Um, but Jethro evidently liked what he saw and heard. And so he offered his daughter to Zipporah, his daughter Zipporah in marriage, and Moses and Zipporah both swiped right, and this thing happened. And so Zipporah got pregnant, and she gave birth to a son, and Moses named the boy, I'm an alien here. That's almost literally a, uh, the translation of Gershom. I mean, these Old Testament kids got some weird names. <laughs> Those of you who think you're troubled by your name, this, imagine being called, I'm an alien here. Uh, so so, so uh, things that, through that, that brings us very nearly to the end of chapter 2 and the first part of Moses' life. Okay, it's worth pausing at this point for a moment to recognize where Moses is. Uh, Midian was a dry and desolate place, far from civilization, or at least far from the civilization that Moses had known. 
And it, it, it wasn't even directly on any serious trade route. And Moses was in the middle of nowhere. And let's remember who Moses was. He was trained as an Egyptian prince. So think for a moment, what were Moses' dreams? We don't really know Moses' dreams. He doesn't share them. But we know the universe within which his dreams were formed. And we know how dreams work. We have them. So we can make an educated guess about what Moses' dreams were. To rule Egypt or perhaps be in a position of prominence in the Egyptian court. To live a life of comfort, perhaps even luxury, or to do something grand and noble, to, to free the oppressed descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to bring his biological heritage into the fold of the recognized Egyptian society. Did he dream of marrying a beautiful Egyptian princess? Don't tell me that he hadn't already spied out one or two in his time swimming in the Nile. To have handsome princely, son, princely sons who, who would occupy seats of power in Egypt one day to, to own an expansive track of rich land somewhere on the Nile Delta where he might raise cattle and crop to build a palace there, to raise children there. Whatever his dreams were, they were shattered in the desert of Midian. I mean, we can know with near certainty that he did not dream of spending his days trying to find water for his father-in-law's flock of sheep on the backside of nowhere in the desolate Midian desert of the Gulf, near the Gulf of Araba. His marriage to Zipporah may have been a happy one. He may have been delighted in fathering Gershom. He may have even come to deeply love and respect Jethro, but this was not what he dreamed as a young man. This was not within the orbit of Moses' hopes for himself. And and what I want to make sure we get here, don't miss this. Moses spent 40 years with Jethro's Midian clan. 40 years. I want you to hear what Old Testament scholar Doug Stewart said about this. I'm going to read a couple of paragraphs from this Old Testament scholar and his explanation of this. Listen to this. Quote, these circumstances are not entirely positive, I'll say. From Moses' point of view, he was now permanently separated both from what he regarded as his homeland, Egypt, and also from the people he now identified with his own, Israel. Consider then the spiritual challenge that was his. He was a failure as a deliverer of his people, a failure as a citizen of Egypt, unwelcome among either of the nations he might have called his own, a wanted man, a now permanent resident of an obscure place, alone and far from his origins, and among people of a different religion, parentheses, however much your little, little Midianite religion may have shared some features with whatever unwritten Israelite religion existed at the time, in parentheses, period. His character, as we have seen, was clearly that of a deliverer. His circumstances, however, offered no support for any calling appropriate to that character. It would surely require an amazing supernatural action of a sovereign God for this washed-up exile to play any role in Israel's future. Moses knew this. And his statement, I have become an alien in a foreign land, resignedly confirms this. End quote. This is not the stuff of which dreams are made. They don't write Disney songs about this. And for 40 years, whatever he might have hoped would become of his life had, was long since resigned. As I said, there was certainly happiness. There were jobs to get done. There were to-do lists to check, necessary things to do. But the dreams, 
The stuff that he imagined, the stuff that was deepest in his chest, that was gone. What about you? Ever feel that way? Was there a sense of calling on your life at some point, somewhere along the way, an idea that that there might be something for you to do? Something that you'll be involved with, some way that God might use you? Was there, was there a future that you imagined? Has there, has there been a dream? Maybe vague, but it was there. And now? Are you still working it? Are you trying to take matters in your own hands, perhaps? Or is it past that? At this point, it's shattered. Maybe long ago, forgotten, resigned, And in exactly that kind of place in Moses' life, God was at work. God is always at work for our good and for the purpose of showing us who he really is. Don't miss this. God was training Moses in desert living. He would need those lessons in the future. And more importantly, God was removing all of Moses' Egyptian clothing. His robes, his sandals, his desires, his entitlement. Wait, what do you mean entitlement, Ed? I mean, surely, surely you can see that Moses' entitlement is a feature even of his heroic, noble interactions. I'm not saying it was bad. I'm just saying it's definitely, entitlement is definitely a part of Moses' story. I mean, why didn't the Hebrew slave rise up against the Egyptian slave driver himself? Why didn't he say, enough is enough? If Moses could kill the guy, surely the Egyptian slave could put a hurting on him. Why didn't he? Well, Moses was an Egyptian prince, and he knew he had the right to do this. And the training and the expectation, he knew he was entitled. But not anymore. After 40 years tending sheep in Midianite desert territory, he was not that man anymore. And God needed him to not be that man. God needed that. I realize now, I want to speak specifically to those of you who are uh, less Pick an arbitrary number. You're under 42. You might be 28. You might be 38. You might be 17. I realize now that most, I literally mean most, most of what I thought qualified me in my 30s had no bearing in God's mind. It bore no weight. Not only did it not qualify me, some of it actually got in the way. God had to work around it. So, God stripped away the Egyptian from the Egyptian prince, and then he stripped away the prince. And what was left was a man God could use and use powerfully. What was left was a man through whom God could change the world. Okay, let's speculate for a minute. Before we end this, let's speculate. How do you suppose this story would have unfolded if Moses had resisted God's activity throughout the 40 years? Some of you are resisting. What if he were constantly trying to get back to the Nile Delta? What if, he, what if he resented Jethro? Tend your sheep. Why don't you tend my shoes? We don't know the story of those 40 years at all, but there is no indication that Moses did anything other than make his days as happy and as full as he could. 
There's no indication that he was outlining his next great move. There's no indication that he was planning his vindication and his return. There's no indication that he clung to his former life at all. And in that desolate place, among his shattered dreams, and in his resignation, God was at work. God is always at work. Even in the worst of our circumstances, because they are decidedly not all good, there are cancers and divorces and pandemics, but God is always at work for our good and for the purpose of showing us who he is. So how do we keep that perspective? If we're supposed to live in alignment with that, if that's, one of the, if that's a universal principle, how do we keep that perspective? I want to admit, I don't, <laughs> I don't fully know. Uh, keeping this perspective is a battle. Let's admit that. But look, if you forget everything, don't forget this. Clinging to this truth, living in light of this, I think is the main battle for us. The main battle isn't finding solutions. The main battle is clinging to the law that God is always at work and living by faith in that. That's always the space we're supposed to occupy, no matter what's going on. But I think it helps us to remember Exhibit A, the story of Moses. And to remember that God is with us. That's one of the ways that Scripture constantly confirms this. Late in his life, uh, Moses preached a final sermon, or actually a series of sermons, it's in, uh, to the Jews who had left Egypt and were about to enter into the Promised Land. And this series of sermons is known as the Book of Deuteronomy. In chapter 31, verse 6, Moses reminded them, Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Don't be afraid. No matter what you're facing, don't be afraid. For the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. In other words, I'm always with you. I'm always at work. And then God highlighted this great truth with physical evidence. He came to visit our planet. God the Son became a man and dwelt among us. He was literally with us. And do you, know, do you know what Jesus' last words were on the planet? Jesus' last words. He gathered his disciples together. He's given them a final charge. And his very last sentence was this, Surely I am with you always to the very, very end. I'm always at work. In other words, I'm always working for your good and to show you who I really am. God is always present, always working. So where are you today? I'm going to ask the worship team if they would come up. Uh, I don't know how, uh, I don't know why you're here, and I don't know what God intended for you to hear this, but I believe he did. So where are you today? Are you, uh, are you taking matters into your own hands? Somewhere? Working to make something happen? Maybe there's a problem, a worry, Maybe something has made you angry or disappointed. You haven't consulted God. You're just working a solution. You're outlining your options. You're taking it up. Or are you railing against God's work? You're in a desolate place. But you're not resigning. No, that feels like failure. You're, you're, you're trying to make your great comeback. Or do you feel like you're on the backside of nowhere, disconnected? You're working your to-do list, but 
The dreams are shattered. Let's pray. So for a moment, Father, we give you permission to speak however you desire to speak. We, we look, Lord, we're doing our best right now to open up the darkest closet in our heart, and we're showing I don't know. We, we, open, we don't even look much. And we look inside and we find disappointment. And hurt. There might be frustration at you. We had this thing on our life and you didn't come through. Or there's disappointment at a spouse or a, a circumstances. Circumstances just didn't work. You're the God of circumstances. So today, Lord, before you, we want to do some work of aligning ourselves with the universal principle that you are always at work for our good, showing us who you really are. We submit to that.